Well, good morning again. Go what? Kids go away. They go downstairs. Okay, if you don't want to listen to me, hey, you're lost, kids. Just kidding. I don't know. Well, welcome. It's good to see all of you again. Uh, again, happy Father's Day to all you dads. Um, appreciate all that you do to serve, care for, honor, uh, protect, provide for your families. Um, may the Lord grant us grace to do that in an ever-increasing manner. Um, we're going to continue our, our series, what we started last week, in the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Uh, last week looked at chapter 1. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verse 6. And we're going to go through verse 6 of chapter 3. Judges chapter 2 beginning with verse 6. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, um, the scripture should appear on the screen so you can follow along there with us. This is God's word. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the ways in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. 
So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Would you again just bow your head and pray with me? Father, we come to you and we ask for the aid of your spirit in hearing you speak to us through these words in, Ju- in Judges 2 and 3. Make your will very plain to us in these words. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you in these moments. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're reading the history of a nation. Judges 2, 6 through 3, 6 here is a a summary of the people and events that will unfold in the time period for the rest of, of what you'll cover in this book in Judges. In a sense, what we're reading is, is sort of like a glorified table of contents. Everything listed here will, will be detailed and, and, uh, and, and expounded in greater specificity in the chapters that follow this. So we're considering the spiritual history of a nation this morning. And let's be clear, it is not pretty, right? In our passage, we're informed immediately of the death of of Joshua, a remarkable leader, a godly man. He led the people in faithfulness to, to the Lord, to I Am, to Yahweh. And under his leadership, the people of God had seen and experienced God's great and gracious acts over and over and over again. Victory after victory happened under the the humble leadership of Joshua. Verse 7 of chapter 2, look at it with me. It tells us this. It says, uh, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. But After this, we are very quickly confronted with dark, foreboding news. 
right? Joshua and his generation finished their sojourn here on earth. And according to verse 10, look at it with me. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That's, that's stunning. And, and this isn't just a bare fact, but this, this has a, a litter of ugly implications that play itself out in the life of, of this people. Verses 11 through 13 continue on to tell us all the spiritual implications of a generation who did not know God, nor his great acts on behalf of his people. Let's be reminded of again. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, as a result of this, not knowing the Lord, not knowing his, his great work that he had done for Israel, verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. See, the, the God who had just a generation earlier delivered them from cruel tyranny of, uh, the, the cruel tyranny of Pharaoh in Egypt, of, of unbelievably miserable slavery, that God, the people, abandoned him, turned from him, and they demoted him from being their, their heart's sole affection, from being their, their exclusive king, they demoted him to something else. And instead of, of one worthy of all their affections, Israel went after other gods. And, and the gods listed here are Baal and Asherah. Now, it's important that we understand what's going on here. Re recall, if you will, most of us know this passage, but Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 says this. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? We know that there's one God. And you shall love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Right? So this was the call, having been delivered, having been gathered to God and his people, this was the call on their lives to have all of their affections and all of their obedience reserved exclusively for this God. But now, Israel finds himself in a land where polytheism is the flavor of the day, every day. Right? Not just one God, but, but many gods. And this is the way polytheism worked, at least in this day. They were, the gods were kind of like service providers. Think of them that way. The, the different gods provided different services. In other words, you would appeal to Baal for rain because he was the god who provided rain. You would appeal to another god for fertility because that wasn't Baal's uh, you know, domain. You would, you would need to go to another service provider for that service. You would no, go to another god for, for health and wellness. Right? In much the same way that you and I, we go to waste for our, our food and other things. And, and we depend upon National Grid, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know. We depend upon National Grid to provide us power, right? And, and we go to Geico or some other place for our insurance policies, right? They went to the appropriate God for their appropriate end, what they needed. 
So in turning from Yahweh as their, as their heart's exclusive affection and, and, and providing him sole obedience, they were saying that we're not sure this God can be trusted for every aspect of our lives. Like, certainly, you know, he delivered us from Egypt. He's done some good things. Yeah, we should still worship him because he can probably provide us with some good and necessary things. But we're going to throw in these other gods because the people here in Canaan seem to be doing really well farming here. And so we better get on board with serving Baal because we need that service in our lives. We need crops in our field and we need rain, right? And so, because, um, because the people conformed to the ways of the people around them, they worship Baal and Asherah. And it wasn't just as simple as, as idolatry. And, and that's ugly enough, simple enough, that, that's almost like you could end the story right there. The way you worshipped Baal and Asherah was, was unthinkable, disgusting. Because what you wanted to do was you had to convince Baal. You had to coax him. Come on, please give us rain. You had to coax him. Well, how did you coax Baal into giving you rain so that your plants would grow? Well, the way that Baal provided rain was Baal would, would have sexual intercourse with Asherah, and then the fruit of that would be rain. So what you would do to try to coax Baal into doing that is you would go to the temple shrine wherever Baal was worshipped, and you would have sex with a shrine prostitute to kind of entice Baal to have sexual intercourse with Asherah. So now, not only is it just like worship in the sense of we think of as worship, they're giving their very lives, their lusts and their passions, they're taking them away from soul, soul ownership of Yahweh, of, of I am, of the God who had delivered their fathers, and they're giving that part of their lives over to these false gods as well. It was idolatry mixed with immorality. And that's what idolatry always ends up with, doesn't it? So God's response to this, to the people that he had called to, uh, to be set apart from him, was not unsurprising then. Like, I've rescued you. You turn your back on me. You snub me. You, you hold your middle fingers up to me. Well, okay. Look at verse 14 with me. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. He led God, divinely led the people around Israel to plunder them, to attack them, to, to pillage them, to push them back when they tried to advance. Whenever they marched out, verse 15 said, the hand of the Lord was against Israel because the people had turned their back on him. And it had all been detailed. It had all been promised. Look at verse 15, the end of it. It says this, um, as the Lord had warned. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them. So the idea that they're getting raped and pillaged and pummeled by the people all around them shouldn't have been a, a shock at all to them. They should have been expecting it. Like, when's it going to happen? 
Because it says, as the Lord had promised them, as the Lord had sworn to them. What's that talking about? It's talking about the covenant. The covenant that God entered into with the people of Israel after he rescued them, after he liberated them, after he freed them. Deuteronomy, that's considered the covenant document. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Listen to it, and listen for the similar language here. Deuteronomy 6, 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord, your God in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you. Lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you. It's the very words that we see twice in this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 16 and 17. Moses is on his deathbed. The Lord's speaking to him, telling him what's going to happen with this people that he's led and cared for and shepherded. And he says this, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods. Same language here in Judges 2. Among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break the covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. Right? There's, there were blessings for obeying the covenant, and there were curses for disobeying the covenant. And the people had, had entered into idolatry and immorality, and so they should have just been looking at the calendar like, when's it all going to go down? When is this promise of the Lord going to be delivered? They knew the Lord was faithful. They should have been expecting this. So it was completely to be expected. But while God's judgment in response to their sin is completely unsurprising. The verses that follow should be shocking. Look at verse 16 with me. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Why? What? Why would I am? Why would Yahweh, why would the Lord do this after what they had done to him? Right? Exchanging him for other gods, demoting him, in a sense, taking him off the throne. Why would, why would the Lord send judges to save them? Look at verse 18 with me. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Here's why. Four. It's giving us a reason. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. We're getting insight into the character, into the nature, into God's being here. The Lord had pity, compassion, because of the people's groaning. Why be moved to compassion? Well, it's worthy of note, and not at all coincidental, that two other times this, word, this term groaning is used in the Old Testament, is used in, connect, in connection with the deliverance of the people out of Egypt. And I want to read just one of those so you can see 
why the Lord would respond to compassion to their groaning. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. Listen for the reasoning. And God heard their groaning. So he heard their groaning. And God remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. We see no evidence that the people repented here. Do you see it? Is it in the verses? They repent. They're groaning. They're being pummeled. They felt distressed. Of course, we're all going to groan. There's no evidence that they repented. They didn't suddenly earn their way back into God's favor again. They didn't snuggle up to God and God was like, oh. No, we don't see that. They were just going after other gods. They didn't deserve God, God's hand of deliverance. God was simply moved by his own faithful character to keep his covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. And so he sent judges to deliver them. It wasn't based on anything in them. It was all based on God and his own character. You know, when, when, when you were a, a kid, and hopefully it was just when you were a kid, and you would break up with somebody and you go, eh, it's not you, it's me. Right? This is kind of the flip side of that. God is coming and rescuing them and saying, eh, it's not you, really. You're, it's me. It's me. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Because I'm faithful to my word. I uphold my promises. I'm going to be faithful to my covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we need to stop because, so God sent these judges. We need to understand what these judges are. Uh, these judges aren't uh, guys or a lady walking around in, a, in black robes with powdered wigs, you know, kind of the, the stereotypical idea of, of Jared's like, I've never seen a powdered wig in the courtroom. I don't know. But, you know, the stereotypical idea we have of, of judges. When, when, you, when you read for the rest of this book, when you read judges, he would, Lord raised him up as a judge. He was a judge. She was a judge. We should think more along the lines of warlord or tribal chieftain. Think Afghanistan where they have the different tribes and there's a leader and, and they kind of govern that little clan, that little tribe, and sometimes they lead them into war. They're, they're clan leaders, military leaders. So when we hear judges, we should think more Braveheart than Judge Judy. It's just, right? But again, it's, sometimes it's hard for us to get out of thinking like Bench, like Judge Wapner. No, we, we should think Braveheart. That's what I want you to think of for the rest of this series. You're welcome. So I am raised up these judges, these warlords, these military leaders, clan chieftains to save his people. Right? Isn't that a beautiful story? They sin. They feel the consequences of their sin. Oppression. And then God saves them. Right? Sin. Oppression. Salvation. Sin. Oppression. Isn't that a, it's a beautiful story. Unfortunately, it's not the end of ours. Because verse 19 reports this for us. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. 
going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. You see, their circumstances changed. Their hearts didn't. Things around them looked different for a while, but their hearts were still festering clumps of of rebellion and, and idolatry and sin. So because they returned again and again to their own vomit, to their, to their own sinful ways, God judged them. And again, they found themselves oppressed again. You see, the cycle started over. The cycle was vicious. Sin, oppression, God raises up warlord, salvation, sin, oppression, warlord, salvation, sin, oppression, warlord, salvation. And, and God allows the nations to torment them, to distress them, to, to plague Israel. Verse 22 tells us, here's the reason why. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And then uh, over in, in verse 2 of chapter 3, we have an elaboration of why God allowed the nations to continually oppress them, torment them, distress them, attack them, pillage them. Look at verse 2. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Now listen, God didn't leave the nations so that Israel could learn to be a bunch of bloodthirsty barbarians. That's not what it's saying. But something happened in the conquest of Joshua in his generation as they went out to attack people. Because they weren't always the mightier force. But guess what they saw? They saw God's power at work giving them the victory. And so that's why God wanted this generation to experience war, so that the people of God could trust in, see, and experience God's power in their own new conquest of these people. He didn't didn't do this vindictively just to oppress them, but so that they would live faithfully as God's people, rejecting what he rejected, despising what he despised, rejecting and hating the, the... the godless, unbelieving way of life of the people that surrounded them. And verse 6 just gives us this crushing conclusion to this whole, to this whole like, family history, history of a nation. Look at it with me. Here's, here's the conclusion of the introduction. We're kind of spoiling the ending of the book of Judges here for you. And their daughters, they took to themselves for wives. These, these women who, who worshipped and served Baal and Asherah, yeah, they're good wives. And their own daughters, they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. That's the end of the story. That's, that's the conclusion of judges. I'm I'm giving it away. Sorry, whoever's preaching the last week. Hopefully it's not me. There's no suspense now. 
What are we to take away from this introduction to, to judges? I think Israel's history is certainly a cautionary tale. First of all, I think we should just be taken aback by verse 10. There arose another generation who did not know God or the work that he had done. They didn't know God. They didn't know his work. Renovation, people of God. When God's great and gracious acts fade from our attention, we will quickly be tempted to flirt with the world around us and everything it prizes. When we allow God, his, his nature, His character, His being, and His gracious acts to fade from our attention, to become, I kind of know that, I, it's okay, we're going to be quickly tempted to conform ourselves to the nations around us. That's the root of sin. Not knowing God or his, his great and gracious acts, that's the root of sin. That's how sin takes, takes hold in our lives. So, we should not neglect any means of grace God has given to us to make us attentive to himself, to make us attentive to his, his great and wonderful love. All those, those channels, that's what it means of grace means, those channels or, or streets or avenues of God's gracious, sanctifying power. We shouldn't, we shouldn't let go of any of those. We should cling to those, bring them to ourselves. Gathering together with, with the people of God on Sunday, that's so old school, isn't it? People that insist on it, they're, they're legalistic. Maybe. But, but perhaps they just understand the fact that when, when God isn't prized and central in every, every thought, we quickly assimilate to the Hollywood, Facebook, whatever culture around us. And those voices become stronger than, than the voice of God. Maybe they just cherish one of God's wonderful gifts to his children to keep us as his own, to keep us close to himself. The Lord's Supper, it's a means of grace by which he seals his promises on our hearts. Reading the scripture and praying are central to keeping God and his worthiness at the forefront of our minds as we go about our day, as we meet disaster, as we meet hardship, as we face temptation. People of God, when God's great and gracious actions fade from our, temp our, our attention, we will quickly be tempted to, to not only flirt with the world, but embrace the world and everything it prizes. Now, on the flip side of valuing and cherishing everything God has given to us to remind us, to strengthen us, uh, is rightly hating what he hates. The, the church is called 
to destroy everything. But the church is called to destroy those things which are threats to God's exclusive claim on our lives. Often we just think in terms of lovey-dovey language when it comes to Christianity. But, but we are called to hate. We are called to, to war. We are called to destroy. The church is called to destroy those things which are threats to God's exclusive reign in our lives. We're called to the mortification of sin. That's our holy war. We're not called to, to a war on people. We're called to the mortification of sin. Israel and Judges was to drive out the nations of that, that around them because God knew they would seduce them. And we're to act ruthlessly against everything that would vie for our affections, the affections that rightly belong to our Creator and to our Redeemer. That's our holy war. God wants to be worshipped with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, every part, 100%. He wants our relationships. He wants our wallets. He wants our sexuality. He wants our soul. He wants our strength. He wants our workplaces. He wants our images, our self-identities. Those belong to him. He wants them. And some of us call ourselves followers of Christ, but we hold back some of those pieces from him and we give them to other functional gods. You say, well, what functional gods? If you haven't read Tim Keller on idolatry, I'd encourage you to do so. He asks two, I think, really probing questions when it comes to exposing those, those idols, those functional gods, those Baals and Asher in our lives. He says, what is it that God commands that you are not willing to do? That could expose an idol pretty quickly. To, to give sacrificially? And maybe money or security is your functional God. To, to reserve your sexual passions for your marriage? Maybe your body and and pleasure at any given moment is your functional God. Is it to honor it and submit to your husband even when he's not honorable or worthy of submission? Is it to, to forgive somebody that's, that's wronged you in a way that you, you think nobody could possibly identify this? I don't know if I could. God calls us to forgive. Are you willing to do that? If not, that's your functional God. Serve a wife that doesn't seem servable? What is it that God commands that you know up to this point you've not been willing to do? Secondly, what is it that God sends into your life that you're not willing to accept? Maybe it's chronic health problems in you or a loved one. Maybe it's the death of plans that you had for your future. What you would do, where you would live, how things would go for you. The road ahead of you just seems to be paved with potholes and, and you can't get through. Are you willing to accept that as God's good providential plan for your life? Are you unwilling to accept it? What is it that God sends into your life that you're not willing to accept? 
The church is called to destroy those things which threaten God's exclusive claim and reign in our lives. Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul tells Christians this, put to death what is earthly in you. Execute it. Line it up at the firing squad. Put it in the electrochair. Execute that. Put to death what is earthly in you, that which vies for your affections with our Creator and with our Redeemer. John Owen, the great Puritan writer, penned these words. He says, do you mortify, put to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. What are those functional gods that threaten God's exclusive reign in your life? What are the bowels and ashras that you're serving alongside of Christ, just as Israel did? Some of us might be sitting here convicted, thinking, I'm so ready to be done with, with sin, with that sin. I'm enslaved to it. I'm crushed by it. I want deliverance. The pride, the ambition, the lust, the the anger is ruining my marriage. It's ruining my family. It's ruining my life. I'm done with it. I want to destroy it. I'm disgusted with it. But try as I may, I just can't seem to get free. I make a decision one day, and I wake up, and things seem to be going well that day, next day, next day. But give it a week, and the bus seems to run over us. And we're back embracing our sin. We long for our circumstances to change, but but our hearts have not changed within us. We're wanting to change, but we feel trapped in the same old patterns of sin. The cycle of judges is too real for us, for some of us. You know it. And we will remain in that cycle apart from Christ. Apart from Christ. The true and better judge. The true and greater warlord who has come to deliver his people once and for all. Every one of us was was born under a curse, just as we saw covenant curses. Every one of us was born under a curse, the curse of the law. In Adam's sin, we became sinner. You were born into sin, and therefore you are worthy of death, condemnation. You were guilty. And as a consequence of that, all of us have lived lives that have failed to, to live up to God's right, fair demands on our lives. I think it's important that, that we feel uh, the weight of the words of Jonathan Edwards that I think capture the message of salvation in this passage. He said this, he said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. People of God, people that have not yet embraced Christ in the hearing of my voice, you have contributed nothing to salvation except the sin that made Christ's life 
and death on this earth necessary. The people in Judges groaned under their oppression. They felt the, the weight, the consequences of their sin, but they did nothing to deserve but God sending deliverers. But he did. Because God is faithful to his covenant. And just as true is the fact that, that you and I have continually chased after other things, other gods. Financial security, settling personal grudges, holding on to bitterness and hurts, significance, finding significance in our, in our work in something other than God. Other than trusting in and delighting in God. Other than walking in obedience to God. We've done nothing to merit God's intervention. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Through faith. Christ became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 confidently asserts this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, here, the blessing of Abraham, covenant God made with Abraham, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to you and me, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He came in order. Jesus came and lived a life in complete obedience to his Father at every moment, with every emotion, with every aspect of his life, that, that we might be saved from judgment to redeem us from the curse of the law. And that we might now have new hearts, the promised spirit, according to Galatians 3.14. That's what the new covenant promised. You, you know Jeremiah 30, 31. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Christ became the curse for us. Our, our sins remembered no more. Ezekiel describes the, the, the promise of the new covenant in this way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the start of heart of stone from your heart and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. We don't need a change in our circumstances. We don't need less worrisome things in our life. We don't need more control over our life. We don't need less temptations to lust in our life. We need new hearts. And Christ came to deliver that, to deliver us, to give us the promise of His Spirit. Because this covenant, the covenant of grace, is executed in the execution of Christ Jesus on the cross, the Lord is committed to 
your rescue, sinner. The Lord responds to our slavery and our oppression with mercy. Not because of us, but because of faithfulness to his covenant. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes, and I want to just take a moment and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us through Judges 2 and 3. Father, we now confess that you alone are God. There is no other. Nothing and no one else is worthy of our thoughts, of our daydreams, of our affections. You alone. And at the very same time, we must confess to you that we have not loved and served you as we should. With all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, we have held back parts in rebellion against you. We have been busy pursuing other things. Father, I pray that by the miraculous, miraculous work of your Spirit, you would show us our sin the sin that has deceived us and entangled us. Convince us of our sin. Show us our failures, our brokenness. Convince us of your perfectly fair and just judgment against all sin. Father, I pray that you would reveal Jesus to us at the very same time. Show us his perfections. Cause us to stand in awe of his sacrifice, his death in our place as a substitution. Strengthen us to return again and again, moment after moment, to considering your great power and your love demonstrated in the man, Christ Jesus. Bind our wandering hearts to you that we might truly be your people and you might be our covenant God. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord our Savior, our treasure. Amen.